Hey y'all, you're listening to Heavy Girls Love Heavy Music, the lunchtime power hour on WPUNK. Don't touch that dial. I'm Dark Karma, and I'm here every Friday at noon talking about the history, culture, and politics of our music, black music. This is a show where heavy women call in to talk about the heavy issues. And in between the discourse, I'll be playing records relevant to the conversation. I'll also be taking your calls. The number is 406-28-BITCH. If you have something to say, feel free to dial in. This morning, we're taking it all the way back to 1979, to the infamous disco demolition at Chicago's Comiskey Park. The person at the center of this story? A rock DJ named Steve, of course, who said he hated disco. Steve Dahl's problem was that he played into a false dichotomy between disco and rock. You see, disco was free and freaky as fuck. Disco was underground. It was where all the black and brown and queer and trans dance queens would party in a highly free, ecstatic, and liberated fashion. Disco was tapped into the power of the erotic, in the Audre Lorde sense of the word. The erotic, the erotic is power. It is firmly rooted in the power of all our unexpressed and unrecognized feelings. If you don't know, look it up. At the same time, rock music had basically been co-opted by white culture. Chicago rock fans were mostly blue-collar white dudes who probably couldn't dance anyway. By July of 1979, DJ Steve was known for blowing up disco records on the air. Every day I would play a disco record and drag the needle across it, you know, and scratch it and then blow it up. But I tapped into something. There's a, an undercurrent of hatred for disco. And he decided to have a bonfire to burn disco records at a White Sox game. Oh, how about that a summer? Okay. Well, listen, we took all the disco records that you brought tonight. We got them in a giant box. And we're going to blow them up real good. Needless to say, things got a little out of hand. like we have some callers on the line. You're on Heavy Girls Love Heavy Music. What's your name? My name is Diana. Hey, Diana. Do you have a story about Comiskey Park? My brother was an usher at Comiskey, so he was there that day taking tickets. So I just want to say they weren't just burning disco records. It was any kind of black music. So he just stood by the pile and took anything we knew from the radio. And when it was all over, he had brought home Donna Summer, Shaka Khan, Gloria Gaynor, and of course, Diana. Some people say that there was nothing racially motivated about this. Mm-hmm. That's what they say. But I heard that for all the black and brown people who were there, like your brother, the energy was threatening. Have you seen the videos? I have seen the videos. And y'all can look this up too. So when you watch the whole thing now, it's like deja vu. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, oh, this is familiar. We've seen this so-called crisis of masculinity before. You will not replace us. You will not replace us. You will not replace us. 
intimidating lifestyle, it's an intimidating culture, and at some point, there it was being forced down our throats. I hated disco. It was the bane of our existence. Almost seemed like an assault and what we grew up on, which is rock and roll. It's bullcrap that these white dudes even thought rock music belonged to them in the first place. Actually, Rock music has been black and femme as fuck since the beginning. Today's show is about the inherent blackness of American music. Here to defend that legacy is all-femme Afropunk band, Fuck You, Pay Us. You're hearing their song, Burn Ye Old White Male Patriarchy Burn. And here's their lead singer, Jasmine Niende. It's about us for having the space to be loud, to create, and to get paid. But when we're doing it for the community, it's really about all of us, you know? Destroy! 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 We say black films to the front because we love seeing black films in the front fucking fucking with us. Like, you know, like, we want to make sure they have a safe space to mosh. We want to make sure they can see. Destroy! 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 And when the mosh pit has films, people of color, when black films are centered up front and like, like do whatever you want like you don't have to be in it you can watch you can be like when the when it's like a more respectful mosh pit it's so beautiful i'm doing one mosh pit like we were in a garden and everybody was taking their tops off we were in the sun just moshing topless that's something only white boys get to do mosh topless but also, I have been in those mosh pits that it's not like that, and I'm just like, you just want to hit me. Like, you don't want to like actually like, like exchange energy, which is what I want to do. Like, they're not all created equal. <laughs> Damn, I want to be in that pit. I also want y'all to meet Harlem-based artist Christina Long, the editor of Black Girls World Zine, which is your guide to moshing while black if you aren't lucky enough to be in an all-black, all-femme mosh pit but want to fuck shit up anyway. I like to go to a show in darkness. I like to go very masculine as well and blend in with the other men. That's my opportunity to be like more of a masculine person. Yeah, pretty damn butch. It's that kind of butch work, because I used to identify as, oh, I'm a tomboy. Tomboy, not that feminine. But no, this is no, this is butch, fucking butch, fucking butch, and don't cross me. And I like walking into a space where the guys kind of they see that and they're like, okay, you're one of us, right? 
great. So like the fun thing about punk or, or metal shows is that there's this kind of orchestrated violence. Um, it does have some intuitive rules to it. So we're being aggressive with each other, but there's still certain lines you don't cross. And to me, I often describe it as it, it kind of looks like a beehive where there's still some purpose to what's going on. But if you're an outsider and, and you don't know what's going on, it probably just looks like some crazy brawl melee of insanity where everyone's getting hurt. And that's totally not what it is. It's a positive space of people expressing themselves. A good band that is getting a response from the crowd doesn't have to ask people to clap their hands or jump up and down or whatever. If you're playing music that people are impressed by, all that happens by itself. So that's usually how I judge a crowd. If you come up on the stage and fucking say, let's do a circle pit, everyone's like, fuck you, man. I'm not doing anything until I can hear um, what it is you got. got, 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 got. These spaces are obviously dominated by dudes. And a lot of times the dudes are heavy set like me, like big and tall. And so when I'm talking about mosh pits and all this stuff, that's me versus some six foot tall, 250 pound dude. And I can handle it and it's totally fine. As being someone who's used to throwing my weight around, I like being in that space of we can go head to head. Uh, but it's still interesting how metal specifically is still its own outlier. Like, people will be like, yeah, punk is cool. But then when you say, like, fucking metal, death metal, black metal, um, I still get a little resistance where people are like, I ain't trying to do all that. Uh, you know, y'all got skulls and, like, Norwegian ritual shit going on. So it's just like a lot of physical activity happening, but it's so fun and thrilling for us. So I was just like, man, I really want to do something with this. And, and I, I guess I'd almost say speak on it as a kind of pride of like, look at what we're doing it here. We're really, really messing things up when we go to a show. We really do destroy shit. This is cool. It's the music though, like, the music is heavy, I will be there. I don't know what else to tell you. Hey y'all, this is Dark Karma, and you're listening to Heavy Girls Love Heavy Music. The lunchtime power hour for fierce femmes and bad bitches with a critical point of view. We're on every Friday at noon on WPUNK. Heavy girls love heavy music. If you're just tuning in, on today's show, we're dispelling the myth of the origins of rock and roll. Let's talk about a short story Alice Walker wrote called 1955. It's about a young white male musician who visits the home of fictional black blues singer Gracie Mae Still. He loves her music. He loves it so much that he buys it all. And soon, the young musician becomes known for performing her songs. Soon, they're calling him the emperor of rock and roll. They're calling him a genius. 
This is fiction, but it's based on facts. The character Gracie Mae Still was likely inspired by blues singer Big Mama Thornton. And that white male singer bears a striking resemblance to a young Elvis Presley. And yet, Yoko Ono's late boyfriend, John Lennon, once said, Before Elvis, there was nothing? You got feelings about that? Anyone else you want to call out? The number is 406-28-BITCH. All right, let's see what's in the voice mailbox. Hi there. I just wanted to offer some advice. Nope. Hi, this is Nabila Sweet. Nope. So like, okay, Elvis Presley or the Rolling Stones or the Beatles. Oh, here we go. People know that they're pulling on a blues trajectory, right? But then what are the blues artists that they talk about? You might get Muddy Waters, you might get B.B. King, you might get uh, Scott Johnson, right? People love to talk about that, but then nobody talks about, like, Sister Rosetta Tharp. She shredded on electric guitar. She was one of the first popular musicians to use heavy distortion. The unique way she used a pick influenced a whole generation of white male musicians. And the blues men were not as popular as the blues women. It's the blues women's records who actually went out and kind of infiltrated all these markets. And it's connected explicitly to a really extractive production system, right? Where these women were not making money when they were recording with Columbia or Victor, but they were producing these records that were very punk, that were reflective of their experience, that were reflective of rage, that were reflective of their identities, that were reflective of queer love, that were reflective of fighting back against oppression in all these different kinds of ways, right? Ma Rainey had a great song called Prove It On Me Blues, basically talking about how she likes to dress up like a man when she goes out, but like nobody can prove it. When I was last night with a crowd of my friends, been watching women, cause I don't like no men. It's true, I wear color and a tie. Claiming openly bisexuality, but in a way that was coded enough to be safe from the censorship laws of the time. If you think about Bessie Smith as an early DIY artist, she, she was the most popular blues singer in the 1920s. She was queer, but segregation still ruled the land, and so she had to go out and make her own tours. She bought her own train. She had a whole crew of people that would travel with her. Like, you know, you think about Black Flag getting the van. You know, Bessie Smith had to get in the train, you know, and literally took a train. She was a black woman on her own in 1925 going through the South on a train and setting up tents where they would put on black music for black communities who didn't have venues in their neighborhoods. There's this one story about Bessie Smith. They had a tent show in the Deep South and the KKK comes to the tent show and she gets, she's on stage performing, she gets off stage, she gets a machete and chases the KKK out of her own gig screaming and they leave what's more DIY than that you know what's more punk than that people have this idea that like in like the late 70s or the early 80s that like white guys invented DIY queer black women were doing this in the 1920s you know without support uh, this is Candace Hansen drummer writer homosexual PhD candidate at UCLA studying I don't know gay music and punk
when I think of what where I put my anger and processed it, I was taught to make it internal very early. I grew up here in LA. I grew up in South Central. And I grew up in a place where it's like, I don't know, both my brothers were in and out of jail a lot. Like my uncles and aunts were also in and out. And like, so I kind of grew up thinking about like our bodies as being something here and not here. Kind of blaming myself, blaming them more than I actually knew about blaming the system or like thinking about like how there's a system in place to that made us poor, that put a target on my brother's back before I was even born. Internalized, internalized, internalized it. That converted into a shame where it was like very self-destructive, like too self-destructive before I knew what to do with that. I grieve the years where I, or like I wish I knew about the power of screaming earlier. I love when they can see me and like, I love being seen in that way. And I love when like, I get to see myself that way. You know, like I love when I get to know that like, that girl who felt that way when she was 13 can like scream when she's 25. One thing I've been re reckoning with is like, I have a niece now who's my same age when I was going through like, one of the worst depressive episodes of my life. like. And I look at her and I'm just like, like I want to say so much to her and I want to like hear my music and I want her to like kind of just know about all of this. But I also know that like, I, I'm still finding the language for, you know, like I'm still finding language to have those conversations, but I know that I'm on the right path to doing that. you can't outrun yourself. No, you can't outrun yourself. there'll be a space for other people to find me and to find and I'll find other people and we'll have this really lit ass network where we all support each other and help each other get through these really really terrible moments in our life where we feel the most alone and that we can like be in a hot basement together and all just let it out <laughs> do you know her do you know her to a big high school in Michigan and I was a total outsider um, but I was struggling with my parents because they were the kind to say why can't you be more popular we're popular we want a kid who's popular can't you be more popular like just all about this social stuff
part of that, I'm a violinist. I'm in the, you know, orchestra room most of my time, and I don't know what you're talking about. There were a lot of opportunities or moments I remember from high school where I could have branched out and I was uh, denied. The number one thing I had wanted to do in high school was join the women's hockey team because I always had this personality of wanting to knock somebody out. That was just kind of, I'm kind of tall, you know, I'm bigger than everyone else. People are constantly telling me to be gentle. Be gentle, be quiet, you're scaring us. And I would also reference Big Patty from Hey Arnold. Um, <laughs> yeah, Big Patty, that was me, right? Of just constantly being told that I was too much and I was gonna hurt somebody. And I think that's kind of how it makes sense now to be, to still be in metal, where it's like, I still needed to find a place to express. Uh, that kind of uh, that kind of energy of like, um, you know, still wanting to uh, express my strength and potentially aggression, but maybe in a safe way. She let me join a sport, but they said it wasn't ladylike. Yes, I love it. That was Jasmine Niende and Christina Long, and I love what y'all are doing out here for black women. Thank you so much. We need an outlet for our rage and aggression, and that's what's so good about music. When I say that music is erotic, I mean that you feel it in your whole body, and they know what it means to be punk on a deep, somatic level. White supremacy has stolen so much from the legacy of black women, so that's why I want to call attention to what Jasmine and Christina are doing right now, making space for themselves and for more black femmes and queers to be on stage, to be in the pit, to be recognized, to be paid so they can thrive and to do it in community, not in isolation. They are just continuing and expanding the art forms they should have inherited. We have a right to be ragey, angry, aggressive, big, loud, tough, and unapologetic. If you are a black person and live in, 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 in the black community all your life, uh, I was constantly stopped. I was a black woman. I had, had a natural, and, and they, I suppose, thought that I might be a, quote, militant. When I say punk is black, I mean that, where do I start? It is, this People may contest this, but I believe punk was invented by black people. I also believe that, like, all black, black people, people are inherently punk. punk. Why do I warrant such attention? To me, punk is about living in resistance to something and being honest and upfront about that. Like, living in your truth of knowing that it ain't all peaches and daisy out here. Like, capitalist exploitation. The abolition of racist policy. Sometimes we don't have the choice to be punk. Like, I don't think black people have the choice to really have to fight for their lives. Like, we didn't choose to be targets of the police. A lot of us didn't choose to come to this country. Like, what do I represent that is such a threat? Punk means knowing the mainstream is not here to support you. 
punk means black DIY because there's no other way to do it. Pushing. I have no choice over it in the first place. That's why when I think of punk, I think of black and brown people and the theories of punk, like the community, that all of that really comes so much more alive to me in black and brown people. To me, we are the most beautiful creatures in the whole world. Black people. I'm in my own little bubble sometimes. Like, I completely forgot that white people are in punk music. <laughs> What, what, like, I think for me, the question that guides my punk is like, how would I feel if there was nothing in resistance to me? Like, how would I feel if I could really just live authentically myself and like feel like my voice was heard and respected? And would I walk differently if I didn't have any oppression? Like, would I talk differently if like, my tone wouldn't be read as white or if it wouldn't be read as black? Would I dress differently if I wasn't read as like a woman or if like I hadn't been like socialized to think that a woman is all I could be. Like, how would I, what would my freedom feel like? Y'all, once again, this is Dark Karma, and you're listening to Heavy Girls Love Heavy Music. Every Friday at noon on WPUNK, we're talking about the history, culture, and politics of the Black musical art form. Unfortunately, our hour together is winding down, but I'll be back next week to talk about the Black origins of square dance music and how Henry Ford tried to use it to advance his anti-Semitic white supremacist agenda. Embarrassing. Until next week, be easy, everyone. Peace. fun and we could not have done it without christina long editor of black girls world scene who we interviewed two years, two ago, years ago in 2017 we never lost hope that we were going to use that tape but 
Thank you, Christina, for patiently waiting on our meandering ass process. And thank you to our friend Jasmine Yende, who inspires us so much on stage and in real life. This episode features a lot of music from the L.A. Afro-punk band Fuck You, Pay Us. We're asking that if you listen to this episode, and you just did, you pay Fuck You, Pay Us. Pay them. Send the money right now. Right now. Also, follow writer, storyteller, and comedian Diana Vega at Ms. Diana Vega. She's hilarious, and she played the caller at the beginning of this episode. The future doctor, Candace Hansen, was the gay punk scholar. Follow them and catch their band, Yawn, on tour and playing shows all over SoCal. Our muse and mentor, Amanda Harris-Williams, played the role of Dark Karma. Follow her at Ideal Black Female for quality, life-changing content. Hashtag brown up your feet. Radio Rejects. We love you. Thank you for talking through this episode with us and simulating a mosh pit in a cabin <laughs> in Idlewild. Y'all, we have a real hotline. 40628 bitch. Call it. If you didn't know that, you have not been paying attention. But you can still call it please, please. and tell us what you think of this episode, who you're fucking with. What's going on in your love life. We listen to all messages and we might even respond. Oh, we also have a Patreon. Uh, that's the thing. Look it up. Support us with your dollars if you're rich. Shout out to our rich listeners. Give us your money. Thank you. This episode had a ton of other references and footnotes. Music, poetry, documentaries, historical and literary references. And we will link to everything that we can on our website at bitchfacepodcast.com and also in the notes wherever this podcast has found you in your process. (laughs) The info is in the liner notes. As usual, this episode was mastered by Anna Arbalis. Thank you, Anna. Cool. I'm NK. She's NK. She's Phoebe. I'm Phoebe. (laughs) (laughs) We make this fucking podcast from scratch. It's punk as fuck, (laughs) y'all. Together, we do it all. We produce. We host. Thank you so much for listening. We love y'all. It's Bitch Face. Bye. Hey, y'all, this is your girl, Dark Karma, and I want to tell you about my friends over at Rave Reparations, who after years of underwhelming dance floors and sadness at the disinheritance of blackness from techno and house music, especially on the L.A. scene, have begun a social experiment coalition cloud formation entitled Rave Reparations. They're piloting this at raves throughout the Southland. The program aims to help build relationships between local black DJs, specifically queer, femme, and black and indigenous people of color, especially, and people of color at large, DJs and house and techno promoters, who are largely not of these communities, and call on support from these lesser marginalized bodies in conscripting venues and fiscal support for parties thrown by the aforementioned groups. Check out their socials at at Rave Reparations. Once again, that's at Rave Reparations on IG and Twitter. That was perfect. That was also, great. I feel like that's, like, that's exactly what a bitch face commercial would sound like. <laughs> and I want to tell you about my friends at Bitch Face. <laughs> yeah, I hope we are your, your favorite experimental audio project. You know that this is true. <laughs> I just like to hear you say it. <laughs> Peace.